Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this morning's edition of Poets Table. My name is Austin Smith. I appreciate you spending some time with me Friday morning to discuss the work of a great poet named Ivan Boland. Ivan was actually an Irish-American poet um, who I had the pleasure of knowing and working with while at Stanford University. And um, I actually wanted to share a little bit about Ivan and some of my recollections of her because um, she was such a fascinating teacher and figure. Um, tragically, she passed away a few years ago now um, of a stroke, and she was um, she was very beloved in the both the American and Irish poetry communities. Um, we're going to look at today a couple of her last poems, uh, which, which were actually published after her death in a beautiful collection called The Historians, which I highly recommend. It might even be a good place to begin if you haven't read Ivan's work. Um, but I just wanted to start by telling you a little bit about her because, as I said, she was a fascinating figure, very beloved, um, someone who really lived out their poetic vocation in, uh, I think, a very admirable way. And um, just to give you a little bit of a, some biographical background to Ivan, she was born in Dublin, Ireland, um, and she went to school at Trinity College there in Dublin and kind of came up in a world of Irish poets like the poet Seamus Heaney and the poet Paul Muldoon and other um, famous Irish poets who were certainly um, coming also from the tradition of great Irish poets from the past like W.B. Yeats. And this was a tradition in Ireland that was very, um, very masculine. You might even suggest misogynistic at times. And so Ivan really had to kind of row against the current to become a famous poet in her own right. And indeed, much of her work is about um, the role of women in Irish history and culture. So this is uh, a topic that she would return to again and again in her work, in her essays, and in her teaching. Um, so she wrote... Uh, a number of collections, um, roughly spanning uh, a time period from the um, 60s when she was still a student, so she was kind of a precocious poet. Um, she published her first collection in 1962 um, while at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, that collection was called 23 Poems, all the way to the collection that was published in 2021, The Historians. Um, Probably one, some of her most famous collections are uh, a, a, bo a book called Domestic Violence, which I think is a great title in that um, not only does it convey what we normally think of as domestic violence, but also um, alludes to the troubles uh, in Northern Ireland and the idea of violence as something domestic for a country to endure as well. Um, and though she did start teaching at Stanford in the 1990s, um, she continued to return to Dublin every year. Um, she had two daughters who themselves um, had children, and Ivan was a devoted grandmother and would return to Ireland um, when she wasn't teaching at Stanford. And um, she was kind of a poet who went back and forth between, between places. Um, but I think in her work, she is always hearkening back to Ireland. So um, before we look at two of her poems, which I, I greatly admire, um, 
I wanted to say just a little bit about Ivan herself. Um, she was a very formidable person. Uh, actually, you could even say somewhat intimidating. Uh, to talk to her was a kind of, um, <laughs> and I don't want to say ordeal uh, because it was a pleasure to speak with her, but it was something you had to prepare yourself for. She was very sharp and very witty and very opinionated, and she had very strong opinions about what makes a good poem or a good poet. Um, I admired her uh, certainty and, you know, her tastes were subjective and her own, but I think when you step back from from that, you recognize that her tastes were oftentimes correct. Um, and she was she was just an amazing um, uh, identifier of talented young poets. She could kind of she could kind of tell when a poet was at a place where they're going to break through. And I think that in her teaching, she was, um, especially with younger um, female poets, she was extremely supportive of them in their careers and very generous with her time and her wisdom. Um, she would oftentimes accost you in the hallway and ask you what you thought about a certain poet or a collection of poems. And you had to be really quick with your answer. If you said the opposite of what she thought about it or about that poet, she would storm off down the hallway shaking her head. <laughs> if you were, if she was in agreement with your opinion, then she would give you this amazing smile and nod vig vigorously and continue to talk with you. So um, in my time with her, I, I think we shared the same taste, so I wasn't lying, but I was able to kind of tell which books she loved and which poets she loved and which she wouldn't. And I could kind of match her opinion pretty well. So um, it was rare that she walked away from me shaking her head. But I know that this was the experience that many of my colleagues had, um, disappointing Ivan by giving her the wrong answer. <laughs> um, so she uh, she was something else. She was um, she was extremely powerful, even in Irish politics. Um, sh her father was the ambassador between the UK and Ireland. So you can imagine the responsibilities that fell upon his shoulders. And she was kind of an ambassador herself, um, really trying to, as I said earlier, support poets and um, help people, and particularly students, um, navigate the difficult world of becoming a, a writer and a poet. Um, there's a story told that um, the president of Ireland, whose name I believe was Mary Robinson, um, would come over to Ivan's house and actually um, ask her advice before giving a big speech. Uh, so she would seek out Ivan's wisdom and advice when it came to rhetoric and how to frame a certain political issue. Um, and Ivan was often asked to read poems at a kind of national level at various inaugurations and celebrations and things of that nature. But she herself was very humble. She hated talking about herself. Um, or her own work. You could never get her to talk about her poems or what she was doing in her own writing. She was always very focused on what you were doing and what you believed um, and what you were thinking through. So I admired that about her as well. So as I said earlier, I think much of her work is um, takes up Irish history and the troubles as well as um, some amazing poems about the potato famine, um, amazing celebrations of life in Dublin. Um, her work is, is just, I think it's, it's fitting that her last collection is called The Historians because much of her work has a kind of um, 
historical context. And I think that she oftentimes hearkened back to earlier times in Irish history. Um, she was both prophetic and very, I think, nostalgic for a time in the past, though not ignoring the fact that those times were very difficult. Um, so I think that this all comes through in the first poem I wanted to share by her, which is The Lost Art of Letter Writing. Um, I encountered this poem in The New Yorker, and you can find it online with a quick search. Um, again, the title of the poem, The Lost Art of Letter Writing. Um, and this poem was published in 2014 in The New Yorker, but it actually, I believe, um, didn't make it into a collection until it appeared in her final collection, The Historians. It's um, If you're not looking at the poem uh, at the moment, it's written in tercets, which are three-line stanzas. And you can also listen to Ivan read the poem, which is, um, I think, something I would rec definitely recommend whenever we can hear the poet themselves read their work. I think we should take advantage of that. But I will read the poem here uh, for our purposes. So again, The Lost Art of Letter Writing by Ivan Boland. The ratio of daylight to handwriting was the same as lace making to eyesight. The paper was so thin it skinned air. The hand was fire and the page tinder. Everything burned away except the one place they singled out between fingers, held over a letter pad they set aside for the long evenings of their leave takings, always asking after what they kept losing, always performing, even when a shadow fell across the page and they knew the answer was not forthcoming, the same action. First the leaning down, the pen becoming a staff to walk fields with as they vanished underfoot into memory. Then the letting up, the lighter stroke, which brought back cranes bill and thistle, a bicycle wheel rusting, an iron circle hurting the grass again, and the hedges veiled in hawthorn again, just in time for the May novenas, recited in sweet air on a road leading to another road, then another one, widening to a motorway with four lanes, ending in a new town on the edge of a city they will never see. And if we say, an art is lost when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak, come, see the way we lost it, stacking letters in the attic, going downstairs so as not to listen to the fields stirring at night as they became memory, and in the morning as they became ink, what well, we did so as not to hear them whispering the only question they knew by heart, the only one they learned from all, those epistles of air and unreachable distance, how to ask, is it still there? So I think that that's a hard poem to hear, to follow, because syntactically it's quite complex. There are sentences within poems. Um, we think about lines and, and of course line breaks, but sentences oftentimes will run over lines um, in a, in a, what we would call enjambment. So um, this is a, there are some very long sentences. You could imagine this poem written out in prose and there would be a very, very long sentence in the center of the piece. Um, the line breaks help us to take a breath at times and, uh, I think help to, um, you know, kind of balance out the long sentence in a way, but it's still, uh, there's something amazing about her ability to maintain this very, very, these very long sentences across lines. Um, it really demands our attention in the way that I think 
letter writing and reading letters um, does as well. So I think the poem sort of enacts what it's about in that way. There is, there's a lot of music in the poem. I noticed reading it aloud. Um, you can hear the the gerunds or um, words that end in ing with evenings, leave takings, asking, losing, performing, forthcoming, leaning, becoming, um, letting. So there's a there's a musicality to the poem in in those sounds as well. But what is Ivan actually saying here? I feel that it's a poem about distance and the ways that we bridge distance. And I think it's a poem, uh, in my interpretation, about migration and leaving a place and being in another place, but having connections still with home uh, and trying to connect with um, family members across an ocean and using letter writing as a way to... Um, conjure the vanished place and the vanished um van the the vanished um world that is still somehow very present in the letters of those who remained uh and so there's something really beautiful here um in the way that she basically takes the act of letter writing and makes it physical and tangible so i'm thinking of her description of the pen becoming a staff to walk fields with so the act of writing becomes a way of returning to a place. Um, the pen becomes a staff or a cane of some kind, supporting oneself as one walks fields um, as they vanish underfoot into memory. So there's a really um, amazing poem by the poet Seamus Heaney, who is another Irish poet who Ivan knew and admired. Um, and he has a, an, a metaphor describing a pen as sitting in the hand snug as a gun. And it's, um, again, that idea that writing can be a sort of act of violence in a way, or it has the power to be, um, comes through in that metaphor. And, and I think that maybe Van had that image in mind when she likened a pen to um, a staff that one can walk fields with, even as they vanish underfoot into memory. She describes then the letting up, so the kind of raising of the pen from the page, the lighter stroke, which brought back crane's bill and thistle, a bicycle wheel rusting, an iron circle hurting the grass. This, to me, seems like she's describing even the shapes of letters as conjuring things, such as thistle. Uh, I could see, like, the letter T, maybe, not only because it starts the word thistle, but um, is a thistle-like letter. A bicycle wheel rusting might be of course, an O or another round letter, an iron circle hurting the grass. I think great poets, as I've said before on the show, have a knack for finding the exact right word. And I'll never forget that image of an iron circle hurting the grass. Um, you know, we don't think of, I don't think we think of an, a rusting bicycle wheel as hurting the grass it lies in, but I'll never be able to, to see um, that image again without seeing some kind of pain being um, being caused by it. Um, then there's this kind of cinematic way that she describes the road leading to another road, then another one, widening to a motorway with four lanes, ending in a new town on the edge of a city they will never see. So there's this idea that from the countryside of Ireland, this letter is traveling mm. across the ocean and then... Um, kind of 
via these this network of roads to a city that they will never even see. Um, and so this idea of the letter is kind of uh, a way for them to travel uh, to a place that they'll never actually physically be able to visit is also coming through there, I believe. Um, I think ultimately what she is suggesting here is that um, letter writing was an art that has been lost. And um, as she says near the end of the poem, if we say an art is lost when it no longer knows how to teach a sorrow to speak, come see the way we lost it. Stacking letters in the attic and then going downstairs so as not to listen to the fields stirring at night as they became memory, and in the morning as they became ink. This idea that there's there's certain things so painful to write that we have to kind of take leave of them. Um, and this question that they knew by heart, um, the only one they learned from all those epistles of air in unreachable distance, this is the question that they're really asking. Is it still there? Is the beloved place that we had to leave due to circumstances of history still there? Um, this is really the question that all of the letters are asking. And um, finally, I feel like we're going to have a bridge here to the next poem I'm going to share, this idea of the hand was fire and the page tinder. Um, this idea of writing as something very powerful and almost physical. Um, I think Ivan has this sense that writing really does shape history and vice versa. And um, writing is not some kind of pastime or hobby for her. Um, writing is deadly serious. And that's what I got from her as a, you know, as a teacher and as a person. Um, what she most demanded was that you were serious about your work. Uh, she didn't abide by any you know, she couldn't she couldn't suffer fools very well very easily she um she definitely wanted you to be taking your work seriously and that was what she i think imparted to many many um actually a generation of students so this idea of what one learns from um kind of uh, from our teachers or from from our parents comes through in the second poem that i'd like to share which is called the fire gilder and this one is also available online, and it was published, I believe, um, maybe a month or so after Ivan passed away in The New Yorker. And so you can find it with a quick search, um, The Fire Gilder by Ivan Boland. She loved silver, she loved gold, my mother. She spoke about the influence of metals, the congruence of atoms, the art classes where she learned these things. Think of it, she would say, as she told me, to gild any surface, a master craftsman had to meld gold with mercury, had to heat both so one was volatile, one was not, and to do it right, had to separate them and then burn, burn, burn mercury until it fled and left behind a skin of light. The only thing, she added, but what came after that I forgot. What she spent a lifetime forgetting could be my subject. The fenced-in small towns of Leinster, the coastal villages where the language of the sea was handed on, phrases bruised by storms, by shipwrecks, but isn't. My subject is the part wishing plays in the way villages are made to vanish, in the way I learned to separate memory from knowledge, so one was volatile, one was not, and how I started writing, burning light, building heat, until all at once I was the fire gilder, ready to lay radiance down, ready to decorate, it happened, with... It never did, when 
All at once, I remember what it was, she said. The only thing is, it is extremely dangerous. I just think this poem is phenomenal because it enacts um, the poet remembering something within the poem. So um, earlier in the poem, Ivan writes, the only thing, but what came after that I forgot. She remembers her mother saying the only thing about this process of um, changing uh, mercury into gold. Um, I'm not sure even that that's exactly what's being described, but um, some kind of process here um, uh, of playing with chemistry and playing with these very dangerous substances, right? Um, some Something about that needs to be known. And so she's saying the only thing that you really need to know about this process, but then the poet says, what came after that I forgot. Um, and then the poet transitions to saying, what she spent a lifetime forgetting could be my subject. And Ivan writes about memories that she has of Ireland, um, fenced in small towns, coastal villages, where the language of the sea was handed on. Um, you know, uh, shipwrecks, phrases bruised by storms. I love this idea of language is actually being impacted by place. Um, so there's a language of the sea that can be handed on. There are phrases that can be bruised by storms and by shipwrecks. And she says that her subject, Ivan Bolin's subject, is the part that wishing plays um, in the way villages are made to vanish, separating memory from knowledge so that one was volatile and one was not. And so she's kind of describing the poet as being the fire gilder herself. So this poem would qualify as a poem about poetry, a poem that um, likens the poet to maybe a certain profession or vocation. In this instance, the poet is someone who plays with chemistry and fire in, in such a way that something is separated from something else. One is volatile and one is not. And there's a kind of, as Ivan describes it, building heat to lay radiance down. And this kind of process of decorating history with with knowledge, uh, what is remembered with what is known. Um, and only at the very end of the poem does Ivan say that she remembers what her mother told her. The only thing is it is extremely dangerous. So this process of fire gilding, uh, melding gold with mercury, um, so not turning mercury into gold, as I said before, but melding gold with mercury, using mercury as a way to maybe if, as far as I understand it, um, making gold run and making gold um, maybe uh, more malleable in a sense, but you need to use this very, very, as we know, poisonous and dangerous substance to do so. The phrase mad hatter comes from the fact that um, I think haberdashers back in the day would have to use mercury, and so they would... Um, oftentimes go a little bit insane from their exposure to mercury. So um, this is a process, being, the idea of fire gilding is actually a process that um, requires craftsmanship and mastery and takes great care. And um, this is kind of a metaphor for the poet. The poet has to take great care when it comes to memory and knowledge and writing about the past and the present. Um, separating out what is true from maybe what's just merely imagined. Um, and so 
Ivan is basically, in a way, kind of um, not only comparing herself to the fire gilder, but declaring, I was the fire gilder, ready to lay radiance down, ready to decorate it happened with it never did. And then this memory of what her mother told her comes back via the writing of the poem. It's something that um, the poem helps her to remember. And um, I think that it's, it's really a remarkable um, example of a poem figuring out what it's saying as it proceeds down the page. Um, I think we think sometimes of a poet um, having a set idea of what it is they want to say before they begin writing. Um, but I've found in my own work and in reading other poets that I think what's most exciting is to find what it is one is trying to say via the act of writing. And the poem itself becomes a kind of process of figuring out what it is the poet is attempting to say. Um, Robert Frost said, if there's no surprise in the writer, there won't be any surprise in the reader. And so this idea that the poet him or herself has to be surprised by what it is they've written for the for the reader to have that that experience. You know, so obviously when Ivan began writing the poem, I think that she probably remembered that what her mother said was the only thing is it is extremely dangerous. But she wanted to enact this um, process of memory and remembering via the poem. So she was craftsman or craftswoman enough to recognize that she needed to kind of filibuster that or forestall that until the end for the poem to really pop and work in the way it does. So it's really kind of strange to talk about a poem by Ivan Bolin because she spent so much of her life talking about the poems of uh, of her students. And again, um, she very rarely talked about her own work when I, when I um, had the pleasure of knowing her. And then these poems would appear in the New Yorker and, you know, we would all kind of read them um, ravenously to see what she was up to in her own poetry. I think that her poems are, um, they are a evidence of her, the great care she took with language. And um, she never, I don't think there's a wasted word in her poetry. And she was not someone who wrote a terrible amount. She, um, she, she, when she wrote a poem, you could tell that she really meant it and it needed to be written. There's a kind of necessity to her work. Um, and I think that she's a poet who, um, I don't know why I, this comes to mind, but I feel like um, she's a poet who maybe um, Midwesterners might particularly enjoy in that she, she writes a lot about place and about connection to a particular landscape and memory and um, with the potato famine poems, agriculture and genealogy. And so though she was an Irish poet, and though she taught for many years in California, I feel like there's something uniquely <laughs> maybe Midwestern about her in a sense. And maybe um, that was something that, that came through in our conversations. She was very interested in where one came from and how place influenced one's poetry. Um, so I've spent some time, and you have as well this morning, with the great Irish poet Ivan Boland, um, just to remind you of the poems that we uh, spent some time with. The Lost Art of Letter Writing and The Fire Gilder. And both poems are available online if you'd like to spend some time with them. I think that they really um, benefit from being read rather than heard. Uh, I did my best to read them. Ivan also reads them on the New Yorker website so you can hear her voice and how she 
uh, navigates the line breaks and pauses herself. But um, these are poems that uh, are definitely worth reading as well as listening to. And if you're looking for a place to start with Ivan Bolin, I would recommend either the collection Domestic Violence or her last collection, The Historians. So thank you so much again for spending some time with me this morning at Poets Table, which you can hear only on WDRT out of Viroqua. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to, uh, about poetry with you, and I look forward to uh, being with you again next Friday on Poets Table. Until then, take care.